Gratitude That's my everyday Have you ever looked up at the stars and just wondered what it all means? Asking yourself, how did we get here and where are we going? When I look out into the world, I see so many people getting lost in their stories, rarely thinking about or asking the bigger, unanswerable questions of the universe. Like what's the purpose of life? How did we come to be? And what happens when we die? This is pretty much all I think about. So I decided to start asking others what they thought as well. So grab a cup of coffee, open your mind, and enjoy the conversation. If you're seeking enlightenment, you've missed the point. Yeah. It's it's a polishing of the mirror, as they say. Mm. And that the idea is that you are always, we are always enlightened. Like enlightenment is the baseline natural state of everything. Mm. Enlightenment is everything. These outpourings and these expressions of enlightenment, like we are, are just smudges on a mirror. And the best we can do throughout our life is wipe that mirror clean so that we can most brilliantly reflect our own light of enlightenment for all. Welcome to another episode of Quantum Coffee. This week's guest is Matt Myro. He is truly an incredible human being, uh, one of the wisest souls I've ever met. And I'm super stoked to have had the opportunity to have this conversation with him. Um, I don't think there's really much to say. I'm just going to, you know, dive in. I guess, you know, I met Matt uh, here in Austin uh, a couple years ago and we've connected, um, you know, quite a bit and just, you know, the ability to sit down with him and, and instantly dive deep and explore uh, the deeper questions of the universe and consciousness. And he's such a, a wise man, uh, full of knowledge and He's very intellectual and he, he, he's studied a lot of these different philosophies and belief systems. And uh, he has a wide range of wisdom, uh, not th- just through like reading, but actually through experience. Um, and he's just one of my favorite people to talk to. And I know you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, would love to hear your feedback. So listen all the way through and as always, if you feel called, please share this uh, with your friends and leave a review and rate it. It will go a long way in helping this podcast grow. And um, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Hope you guys enjoy. All right, Matt, Matthew, Matthew Myro. Thanks for coming on the show, brother. Thank you, Joe. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm super stoked to have you. Uh, this is one of the first time I'm doing a live show in the comfort of my own home. As you live here in Austin and super stoked about it. Got these new mics too, which are amazing. Hopefully they sound better for all those listeners out there. Yeah, hey, you've got the good stuff. The show yeah, mics. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, brother. Um, yeah, man. Super stoked to dive in. Um, you know, there's not a lot of people that I really you know, have just deep, deep, deep conversations with, um, you know, the more I've done this podcast and like exploring these questions, it's, it's been a lot of fun for me. Um, but I really am stoked to talk to you cause you've, 
you've journeyed, you've, uh, you've kind of dove in deep into the, the deeper questions of the universe and you explore um, and bring in insights that I've never really been familiar with. So I'm really stoked to dive in with you and, and share some of that wisdom with the listeners. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's start with a little bit about who you are in this, in this reality, um, a little bit about your story and what you're doing now, and then we'll kind of dive into uh, a little bit deeper stuff, which we can't help. <laughs> can't help ourselves. <laughs> cool. Well, I live in Austin, Texas, like you said, currently, but I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and will never take the Cleveland out of me, that's for sure. And I think I'm actually moving back there in a few months, but uh, here in Austin for now. And in between Austin and Cleveland, I spent about 15 years in the Bay Area, California. So I would say that you know, I grew up as a boy to a man in Cleveland, but I grew up as a, a man into spirit in California. Mm. I like the way you put that. Let's start with uh, with you, you know, going to college because you talk about your college experience, and I think it's a very unique one. Um, what you went to study and and kind of what like you obviously have been on this path for a while, really exploring these deeper questions and and trying to understand reality and what it is on a deeper level. So where did where did that that interest in going and studying what you did study and talk a little bit about that and then kind of talk about what that experience is like in college. Sure. Yes. So I'm going to rewind a little bit. We can go into it a little further later on in the conversation if you want to, but I got very, very, very into shamanism at a fairly young age in my teenage years. And so- Can you define shamanism for those that might not be familiar? Sure. I, I hesitate to even use the word shamanism because mm-hmm. it's not an ism at all. It's a it's a kind of a conglomerate of beliefs among indigenous people. Mm. And a shaman traditionally is an intermediary between the people and the spirits. And so, so it's similar to like if a, like a religion, like a, like a priest is what you have to go to to kind of confess your sins and they're like the connection to the divine, but in like a different kind of story. Yeah, yeah. True, more of a traditional indigenous sort of yeah. path. And oftentimes they have a very direct route to that, whatever that spirit realm is, be it mm-hmm. through plant medicines or maybe dance or breathing or running or whatever it might be. Okay. So what did that look like for you when you started getting into that? What called you to that first off? Yeah. So my dad's first cousin is a man named Myron Oshowski, and he was working for the, uh, let's see, the, the foundation of shamanic studies. So it started by Michael Harner, who was an anthropologist, went down in the 60s to the Amazon, drank some ayahuasca and was like, oh my God, and was studying the tribes there and had this incredible opening blast off experience, but didn't like the fact that he had to use some kind of substance for it. Mm. So he started exploring other shamanic cultures around the world and found that one very common way for people to kind of eject their spirit into the realm of spirit was through a drum and started really almost creating a cartography of the spirit realm using the drum to navigate that sort of space. And so my cousin had a proclivity towards ejecting into the spirit, if you will. Mm. And when he found the drum, he was able to use that vehicle as a more reliable means to have that kind of experience. Navigate a little bit. So he would, yeah, exactly. Was it, is it like all percussions? When you say drum, is it like any kind of vibrational frequency sounds that help you navigate that space? Or is it like a specific type of drum? 
for they use a specific type of frame drum. Okay. And uh, dun, 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 yeah, I know. I went. I did a peyote ceremony, and they there was very like masculine energy, and there's just this one drum they had. And it was yeah. just like very like do 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 do. It was like towards the fire, like yeah. similar to that. It's like this calling in the spirits. Exactly. Yeah. It's sort of a more. It's more of a traditional Native American sort of path. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's the drum that we use. Okay. But so my cousin was traveling the country, traveling the world, really doing these workshops, um, teaching these ancient shamanic practices, allowing people to do what they call shamanic journeying, using the drum to go and explore these different realms. And um, so my dad's Jewish. My mom is, she calls herself an ethical humanist or a a recovering recovering Christian or Mm. whatever. A lot of spiritual abuse in her childhood. Mm. Uh, So... Like a lot of people deal with that in our culture today, yeah, right? Yeah, they really do. It's hard. It's really hard to really overcome do. those those structures, the belief systems that are forced upon us through fear and shame. Oh my God. Really, well, that's some deep trauma. Yeah, being consistently told you're a horrible person and yeah. going to hell and all that stuff just because you believe different things. Is, yeah, it's really hard. It's we terrible. can dive deeper into that in a sec. I'm sure we'll have to. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to cover that. Yeah, we will. Um, so, yes, yeah, so... My family was very open-minded. And so Cleveland has a pretty unique and fairly sizable spiritual community. So he would regularly, Myron, my cousin, would regularly come to Cleveland and he would stay at my house. And one time when he was there, I happened to walk by the, the guest room where he was staying and he was using his drum and doing a journey, eyes closed, the whole thing. And afterwards, I was like, what are you doing? What, what are you actually up to? Why do you keep coming here? What's going on? And so then he shared with me, this whole shamanic journeying thing and going to travel to the spirit world to speak with plants so that he could bring back uh, wisdom and help heal people. I was like, wow, that's fascinating. Mm. And at the time I had really bad acne and I'd been going to the dermatologist, I don't know, for two or three years or something that I was thinking was 14 or 15 at the mm-hmm. time and was sharing that with my cousin. And a couple of weeks after he left, I got a box in the mail and he said, okay, use this make a tea out of it, drink it. And it was just a box of herbs. And I was like, okay. And he's like, I did a journey on your behalf. This plant called out to me, told me it could help you with your acne. Wow. Like, wow. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Give it a try. So I've been going to the doctor for two years. That isn't working. Yeah. Well, I'll try anything. Yeah. I was, I was a pimple faced 15 year old. Yeah. I was done with that. Yeah. Mm. I was ready to move on. So I made the tea and I apply it to my face and drink it. And in two weeks, gone. Wow. My skin was completely clear. Do you recall what that herb was? I do not. You know, yeah. I do not. I'm not even sure if he actually told me the name of it. Yeah. He's just, just like, a, this is it. A bag of dried herb. Yeah. And it's yeah. like the vibration of the plants, right? And the frequencies that they all carry. And that specific one was the one that helped treat what you had going on. So was it gone after that? Two weeks of treatment. Did you have to continue the treatment, or was no, it just no, didn't deal with it anymore? Didn't deal with it anymore. Did you follow up with him at all, and like why, or like what was this? Like how did this happen, or did you just kind of trust it? I just trusted it. Mm. Really, that's a good question. But yeah, for whatever reason, I just trusted it mm. and kind of kept it on the back burner. And so that's like a deep experience when you're that age to be like, wow, there is alternative ways, and it's not just you know this woo woo like kind of mystical thing. It's like, I I actually got to have an experience of this thing healing me. So that kind of created this desire to dive deeper into it. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I got into college, realizing that I could study cultural anthropology and that was about as close as I could get to shamanism Mm because they're really good. They're not doing that in Western universities. Not really. Yeah. No, it's not really a class you can take. Mm -hmm. But 
being able to study cultural anthropology, I was able to kind of get close to it and start looking into these different tribes through the Amazon or even West Africa or Siberia or whatever it might be, trying to understand how they have this communication with the spirit realm and how they utilize these intermediaries. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's basically. So what was the, what was you, what, what is it that you went and studied in school? Okay. So I got my degree. I, I was able to make my own major in undergraduate school. And so it was cultural anthropology, the philosophy of religion and cultural arts. And I called it the human experience because mm. I was really trying to get at that. Like, what is it about being human that is unique from all other things on this planet? And those were the kind of the areas that I saw as being most uniquely human. Mm-hmm. So of course you graduate with that kind of degree. The best thing you can do is go to graduate school. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm going to go get uh, a traditional job with that one, right? No, it's not going to work. No, no, no. So, so like, let's just continue the education, see where this thing goes. Right. Okay. Exactly. So where do we go from there? Exactly. So yeah. So I was really interested in consciousness, and so mm. that human experience led me into the idea of consciousness and the anthropology of consciousness and being able to really study how humans interact with their own self-awareness. And there were exactly two universities in the country that offered some kind of graduate program in consciousness studies. Both of them happened to be in the Bay Area. Mm. And I chose the California Institute of Integral Studies. Mm. There's a program there called Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness. Wow. So through that experience, and I guess through the experience up to this point, what what is like, what have you learned about it? What is, what is consciousness? And, and the, the first question I guess we can dive into that I ask all my guests is like, what's the purpose of life? What's the purpose of consciousness? Like, why are we all here? What, what's the, what's the point on like a deep, deeper, deep, deepest level? Yeah. That's a fantastic question. And I, <laughs> I seem like you're the one that, that should have an answer. If I'm looking for all these people that have an answer, there's a guy that studied it. <laughs> I would say that the, idea of purpose is an anthropomorphization of the idea of consciousness, if that makes any sense. Believing that there must be some kind of purpose behind this experience is almost like a egoic drive, Mm. as far as I can tell. So explain that a little bit. So maybe in a lot of ways, the purpose is to understand that there is no purpose. Mm. You know, finding purpose in the purposelessness of existence. Mm. And that's like really hard to comprehend, right? And I think that's part of the paradoxical nature of the universe that makes it the experience possible is in order to have an experience, we have to live in a, in a du- dualistic place that is paradoxical or else like, because if God is everything and nothing, then there's no experience until there's duality. And so there the meaning of life really is the meaning that we decide to give it. And that's kind of a scary point, right? Like there's that equals total freedom because then I can go create and have the experience that I want. But at the same time, there's really no point. Yeah. So how do you personally navigate that understanding of that truth? Yeah. Perfect ambivalence is Mm. kind of how I like to look at it. And I feel like a lot of traditions try to speak to it and try to uh, address this issue. And the best they can do, and I think that Dr. Mike said this in one of your previous podcasts, is the best they can do is point at it. Mm. 
Yeah, like, like the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon kind it, of thing. Yeah, exactly. And and it's I, like even anytime we try to describe God or the one or universe or spirit, as soon as we start putting words to it or a con- concept or, you know, a story or a metaphor, we're, we're taking away from what it actually is because it's, it's ineffable all. And in our linear thinking minds that we have, we can't actually fully understand that. So we use all these different concepts to explain it. And that's why all these different religions pop up around all these different cultures because they didn't actually have this, you know, interconnectedness that we have in this 21st century where we can actually understand different religious philosophies and belief systems. And it's really beautiful that we can see all the deep truths in all of them because really all they are, they're all just trying to make sense of the divine, of the whole, of the all. And they all have just different ways to do it through their own experience of what it is. Exactly. Yeah. Every religion is the finger pointing. Mm. It trying to point at something, but once you create a dogma around that thing it's pointing at, it just becomes the finger itself. And which is uh, the dangerous part about religions as far as I can tell. And and how, you know, through your experience, um, I know I've I've started working with plant medicines in 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 a very ceremonial container and in a healing way. And it's such a beautiful modality when you do it with intention. And it does give you access to these kind of higher states of awareness and even to experiences of oneness, experiences of the moon. Is there, like through your experience, is there any ways to to access that understanding? Um, I know plant medicines is one, maybe share a little bit about your experiences with those, but is there ways to access that without as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Plant medicines are the side door. Yeah. It's kind of like a cheat code. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cheat code. Yeah. And it's... it has its advantages because it allows you to have that experience. And it's like breaking through the egoic structure that is so, thinks it's so real. And it's hard to crack through that. It takes a long time to do these other practices to get to that point, right? It does. It can. It can. It can. It can. Uh, meditation absolutely is one, but it takes a lot of time to be able to silence the mind a little bit and have it into that equilibrium so that you can find those more deep spaces to dive into and to embrace and be, be one with really. Mm. Um, I think dance is a really fantastic way. Music and vibration are incredible ways. And that's why the drum is such a reliable way to be able to do it as well. But uh, the, yeah, the simplest and quickest is through plant medicines. Mm. Talk a little bit about your experience with seeking your own answers. I mean, you've obviously through all this, you know, your own experience and learning and you're, you know, such an intelligent man and you, you're so open-minded and you, you've, you know, something intrigues you and you go study it and you just have, I love how you just bring up like different people and different philosophers and different, you know, all these different ideas into our conversation. So through your journey, what has helped you remember that and how do you, consistently navigate this reality that we're having in this ego personality, um, you know, fully, like how do you navigate it? And are the, what are the tools that you use? Yeah. There's a lot of questions in there. Yeah. Sorry. I kind of just, no, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, I would say that as a young man, I got really aggressive with my consciousness and I did a lot of LSD and psilocybin in very unceremoniously conditions, I would say. Um, like a lot, a lot. <laughs> and it that had ripped open my consciousness. And while it wasn't done in any kind of ceremonial way, 
it did have a lasting effect. And it did, let's see, it pushed the line further. So if I had some kind of semi-permeable barrier around what my consciousness was able to grasp and hold on to, the amount of psychedelics that I was done kept pushing that line further and further out. So the container became larger. And then... Is there um, any end to that container? I doubt it. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it. And when you were pushing those boundaries, were you ever... Did you ever feel ungrounded or scared or like I might be losing my mind because my consciousness keeps unfolding in deeper and deeper ways? Or was it like, keep giving me more, like I want to go explore like super cosmo, cosmonaut kind of thing? Yeah, I'm looking back at it, it was, I'm shocked at how cavalier I was. <laughs> really, it's like, oh, I'm going into crazy public places and putting myself in all kinds of situations that could have easily turned horrible. Mm. And, and that, I mean, I'm sure that almost created a sort of mental toughness, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Grit. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, being yeah. able to handle yourself in those spaces. For me, I mean, because, like, you know, I've kind of pushed the limits, you know, when I was younger as well. And even now it's like I've gotten a lot more respect for exploring consciousness because it can be, you know, a little wild and ungrounding at times. But it, it creates, and I think that's like what football taught me. Like having this discipline and mental toughness of the mind during football has allowed me to go in these spaces and be like, if I ever feel like I'm kind of losing it, I, I can come back to my breath and I have these tools and like, like I'm a warrior and I can like draw on the power of the universe. And it's like this, oh, and like be really centered. But I see how like people that don't have those tools and like can get really, and that's where people talk about like bad trips or they have a fear of going into those spaces because they might lose themselves which is really just the ego losing itself, which is the scary part, right? Sure, yeah. There's no end to the weirdness. <laughs> That's kind of how I came to grasp everything. It's like, okay, instead of instead of fearing what I was witnessing, it became kind of a, wow, that's cool. It became a mantra. Mm. If it ever got too weird, like, wow, that's cool. And it switched it from being scary to being interesting. Yeah, because even the observing, the observer that's creating the story around what's happening is creating the story of whether it's scary or whether it's interesting. Exactly. It's like if I start labeling this scary, I might go down that rabbit hole of my mind telling me I'm in this unsafe place. And But if you can be like, I'm so, my mind is so strong, I've trained it enough. Like I can relabel this story into just an experience and be with it. It's fascinating. Even going into deeper layers of consciousness, you're, you're, you're the observer of it is still can create the story at once around it. Right. Surrender more. Surrender more. Surrender more. So talk about some of the weird moments. Like what's the weirdest kind of exploration of consciousness that you've done? Have you like done astral traveling and talked to light beings and aliens or like some of this other stuff people talk about? So, yeah, I would say um, DMT and ayahuasca have provided for the strangest things to to have a reliable and consistent relationship with entities that are very clearly and very obviously not of my own creation is about as weird as it gets as far as I can tell. Yeah. yeah. What were some of those experiences like? Um, so pretty consistent. So I, I have roughly, I don't know, somewhere in the 30 to 40 range, upper 30s maybe, of journeys with ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. And I would say 80% of them have the same sort of experiential theme to them where the energy rips open 
and I am projected into a place that I like to call the nursery because it has this feeling of nativity to it, if Mm -hmm. you will. And it feels very comforting, but also very bright. And yeah, I call it the nursery. Yeah. And within this nursery is a being that sort of sits as the centerpiece of it. Um, are you familiar with the Taurus? Yeah, the Taurus universe, right? Is yeah. that the model? It's like the, the donut, the cosmic the donut, donut. Yeah, I actually read that in a stalking the wild pendulum. Have you read that book? No, I haven't. Yeah, that, it talks about the Taurus universe and how if everything in the universe is cyclical, it always has cycles. Like it's it's ignorant to think that we came from a big bang that just is going out into nothing, but it's rather we shot out and it's like kind of bending in on itself in this donut shape, like you're talking about. Yeah. Very interesting concept. And that makes more sense because it, you know, it is like everything on the micro equals everything on the macro in this like perfect universe, how it all like fits together. Definitely. And it allows for not just cyclical cyclical nature to it, but allows for more of a spiral kind of nature, right? Mm. Because it's this circle that keeps moving around and it's not actually coming back to the same place ever. Mm. So, and that needs to exist. Like that's the idea of infinity, right? It has to continue to loop in on itself because if there was an end to the experience, there would be no experience. Right. And it's crazy to kind of wrap your head around. Yeah. Beginningless. Beginningless. Wow. So back to the nursery. So so the space is like the inside of this donut Mm -hmm. and the center column that would be where the donut hole is, is where this being kind of presents itself. And this being is always... It's a, a sort of a try being, if you will. Like there's a, a three is a very magical number in, in almost all traditions. Mm. And I like to think of it as the, the masculine, the feminine, and the unification of the two. Mm. And so that doesn't mean man and woman. It's just these archetypal energies mm. that are created. Yeah. So man, woman, child, if you want to be really yeah. blanket about it. I love the, the Hindu philosophy around it where you have the creator the sustainer and the destroyer. Mm. So bringing that around. And like in the Christian philosophy, it's it's the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Exactly. Right? The Trinity. Exactly. Yeah. So this being has three faces. And depending on what I need in that particular journey, I usually interact with one of the faces of it. And so sometimes it's more masculine and it can be like, yo, do this. Mm. Sometimes it's more feminine. It's like, just be more vulnerable, embrace things more. And sometimes it's the the unification where that's kind of this creator aspect, like the childhood mm. imagination. And innocence. And ex- exploring innocence. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so yeah, being able to develop a relationship with that being and being able to accept it for its ways. And sometimes it can be snarky and sometimes it can be adoring, but... Uh, it's the strangest thing that I've ever come across. Mm. And there's no way every single time it feels brand new, even though I have a consistent path to it. It's, yeah, it's like when you when you come back into reality and, and work on integrating that into this human experience, but then you go back in. What I've noticed through my experience is every time I've done nine ayahuasca ceremonies and every time I go back in, it's like instantly when I drop back into the space, it's like, oh, like I, I forgot. And like now I remember. And then like, you're going to forget and then every time you go back, you're going to remember. And it's almost like this journey of constantly, like we talked about earlier, forgetting and remembering. And you don't remember that you forgot until you remember again. Yeah. Anamnesis. Amnesis. Anamnesis. Anamnesis. You got it. Coming yeah. from Plato. Plato. 
yeah. with the root of amnesia or similar wording, right? right. That's where amnesia kind of stemmed exactly. from. Exactly. Yeah. But it's kind of this cosmic, oh yeah. Yeah. Just that, that welcoming. It's like, that's right. This thing was going on for beginningless time before I re-encountered it in this moment. Talk about, so why do we, why do we have to forget? And what's this whole journey of remembering and forgetting? And how come people get so stuck in, in, in the forgetting? I mean, I know our society and our culture and our upbringing and our education systems, they all reinforce this programming of the way the world is and these stories we told. And it's hard to break out of that. I understand that. I have compassion for people that once you start questioning just even the little things in your reality, which I think this whole global pandemic has been a beautiful example of a collective paradigm shift where all of a sudden in an instant, everybody's at home and realized, oh, wow, it is all just a story. Like, I, I don't have to go to work. I can't go to work. It's like, oh, wow, well, what else can I shift? Mm. It is just a story that we're collectively creating. And I think that's that's kind of starting to help people understand and question deeper and deeper things, which is going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But what what's the, like, what's the purpose on, the, on a wider lens of like remembering and forgetting and, you know, why is the way the world is now? And what's, I mean, back to the whole purpose, I guess like the purpose would give it, but in this moment, you know, what, what like, why do we forget? Yeah. I, it seems like the purpose. Mm. It seems like the remembering is the purpose. If there needs to be some kind of purpose. In order to have the experience. Cause yeah. if we didn't forget, we were one and we were all, the thing, the absolute, then there would be no separation and then there would be no experience. So in order for us to experience each other, we have to forget that we're the same. Right. It, Alan Watts has this idea of cosmic hide and seek that we are playing this game that that existence itself, that God or the universe or whatever the term is that you like to use, that We'll just say God to make it easy. Mm. God is constantly playing hide and seek with itself. And the creation of humans on this earth is part of that seeking. And the hiding you know, is the space all around it. And we get to keep playing hide and seek mm. over and over and over again. Let's talk a little bit about the journey of seeking, right? Yeah. So we talked about that earlier. And I think a lot of people that might have you know, uh, an awakening of some sort and they, they start seeking truth and deeper truths, deeper levels of consciousness. They're trying to explore and understand and, you know, ask these questions that we're asking, like, what's the purpose? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Talk a little bit about the journey of seeking and where it leads to. Yeah. Seeking for me has led to some fairly disastrous places mm. and beautiful places as well. But um, when I was in high school, I also... I joined a Jewish youth group and I was only half Jewish, but my buddy was Jewish and he was like, yeah, you're Jewish enough. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. But I had no relationship to the religion whatsoever. Yeah. And, but I started going to these different leadership camps and while there, you know, Shabbat services and ceremonies every weekend. And then um, every morning there's, services. And I was like, you had to go to these things. I'm like, okay. And witnessing the way that all of these people that grew up in this tradition were able to sing these songs in, in Hebrew, a total foreign language and be together in this camaraderie really shook something inside of me. I was like, this is incredible. Like, I want to go deeper into my father's tradition to see what there is there. And, mm. and 
started, I decided I want to have a bar mitzvah and started learning Hebrew and doing the whole thing and got really, really into it. And then wow. I got really into it. At one of these leadership camps, I ended up bunking with the guy who was running the whole camp and he was kind of a, he, he was born a conservative Jew and converted into like a really deep Orthodox sort of Judaism. And we would just stay up late at night and he was just teaching me and teaching me and teaching me. And I got really into to Kabbalah and, and these different aspects of sort of mystical Judaism. And that's mm. all I wanted. But somebody told me, it's like, you can't really study Kabbalah truly unless you know the Torah and the Talmud inside and out. The Talmud's kind of like all the commentary on the Torah. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, well, this is what I've got to do. And so I've got to wear a yarmulke every day and I have to wear a tzitzit, the, the, the fringed shirts underneath. And, and I have to pray three times a day and I have to fast on these different holidays. And so I was like, okay, I have to do all these things. And I started doing all these things. And I told my parents, I was like, okay, we have to have a kosher house now. We're going to go bury these plates, okay? And let's go do this. And Wow. How old were you when this happened? This was, I was 15, 16. So this is like before you got into the, the, the shaman right healing. Right at the same time, actually. Oh, wow. So right just like all time. this kind of spiritual, you wanted to dive deeper in whatever was presented in front of you at that time. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. But because I was trying to push so hard on the dogma part, I was mm. focusing on the finger mm. and lost track of the moon. And the only reason that I was diving so deep into this stuff to begin with was because I wanted to have a more powerful connection with the mystical aspects of Judaism. And it, it almost ruined my family. You know, they were so frustrated and they were kind and trying to be accepting of all the things and, you know, got a second fridge so that we could keep the milk and meat in a different one, you know, the whole thing. And wow. so, yeah. But then finally they were like, this is, this is putting too much strain on the family. Like you used to be such a, a light person. And since you got so deep into all this Jewish stuff, you've become so rigid and dogmatic and a zealot. And I was like, oh no. And that really set me off. I was like, okay, whoops. <laughs> Sorry guys. So you actually like, they had a conversation with you. You accepted that and it actually kind of woke you up from this kind of rigidity and, and, and focusing on the wrong kind of things, right? You're losing the actual connection of being what all these teachings are trying to teach you, which is embodying love and connection with God. And you're getting more about what the teachings were rather than what they were trying to teach. Exactly. So you accepted exactly. that. You had this opening, which is really beautiful to actually accept that and receive it. Right. And so that set me off to seek. That was, mm. this is, that was a long way to get to the seeking aspect. <laughs> that was the, the start The start line. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. So I was like, okay, cool. Gun goes off, boom. Let me seek out whatever else I can seek out. And got really into Buddhism and Hinduism and, and shamanism, like I was saying, and trying to seek out these alternative sorts of understanding of consciousness, of religion, of spirituality and all that stuff until I got to some point where I was like, okay, they're all telling the same story. What am I actually experiencing right now? Because every time I keep seeking for something, I'm removing myself from the present moment. Mm. And every time I do that, I'm losing the mystical potential of every moment. So kind of let go of the seeking thing because mm. like I was telling you earlier, every step you take on the spiritual path is one step away from your goal. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, you almost have to go on the journey of seeking to realize that you've always been exactly where you wanted to be. Yeah. Right. It's like that. It's just, and you know, what I've realized in an infinite universe, like every track you take, if you get lost in seeking, it's infinite. 
Like you're going to be seeking for infinity until you realize there's nowhere to get to. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier. There's like, the only thing that exists is right now and the meaning that we're giving it in the story. And like, that's where like, what I'm realizing too, through some, some medicine work is what have I, what I've heard from some people on the spiritual path is like, like you got to transcend the ego. We want to like transcend the ego. And, you know, I did five MEO DMT and completely blasted off and understood what an ego death actually is. And when I came back into my body, I realized, oh my God, like, no, like I don't want to transcend my ego. Like ego is what gives us the separation and the experience. I can retell the story of what my ego is and how it relates to the world. But tra- I don't think people really understand what transcending that means. I think it's really about integrating it, right? The spiritual and the human body into one, which is like what Jesus was, right? The divine and the human fully embodying that experience. Yeah. Yeah, that integration is important. And it's also, yeah, I feel like with the ego, it's less of a transcending the ego as much as it is a uh, disidentifying with it. Mm. And so when you realize that you are not that ego, that that's not just who you are, that allows for that integration to come into play, I think. Mm. Let's talk, you've done a lot of deep study of different religious philosophies and um, spiritual beliefs. Um, and we talk a lot about the, the finger pointing at the moon. And I think in our world at large, in the collective, a lot of people do struggle with getting so attached to the right way to have a connection with God or my God is right. The God I believe in is right, but their God is wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this idea that, and especially in Christianity, like using fear and shame to control people and get them to believe. And it's really about this. I think it really comes down to this fear of death and using that against people. So talk about your experience through, you know, studying all these philosophies. And you said you understood, oh, wow, they're all really trying to say the same thing. They're all the finger pointing at the moon, trying to understand what the mystical experience is of being one and of being, having a connection to God. So talk about your journey with that. Yeah, I think that the journey was a level of unfolding and it was constantly processing what might come next and started with a lot of the the more Western traditions of of Christianity and Islam and Judaism. And so looking into mystical Christianity and looking to Sufism and, and um, more Kabbalist sort of ideas and then branching out to Eastern mysticism. And it, uh, a lot of them are pointing at the same kind of thing, this, this oneness, this unification, until you get to Buddhism, which sort of throws a monkey wrench in the whole situation. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and so they're neti neti, this idea of not this and not that, that the best way you can possibly describe anything is through a negation of all things. And so, whereas, so... In Hinduism, they have this idea of Atman, which can roughly be translated as God or soul. And it's like this big soul or self. Like the oversoul. Yeah, kind of soul or self, this Mm. Atman. And in Buddhism, they have Anatman, which is there's no self. There is no soul. There are all these things that we think of as being actual tangible aspects of our own being, of the universe, of what have you. It's not there. It's an illusion. It's all actually empty. 
that we fill it back up again. You know, the, uh, the Heart Sutra, the, the Prajna Paramita, say uh, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Form is nothing other than emptiness. Emptiness is nothing other than form. So it's this process of always full and empty and full and empty and full and empty. And it's all, and they are the same thing. There's no difference between the two. And then anytime we try to tell a story around it, it's just us making up crap to be feel better about yeah, our own creating existence. meaning. So we have something to experience. Yeah. So that's so that that's the difference between most religions and Buddhism is not there's not actually a deity that they're no, kind of worshiping or working towards or connecting with. It's really becoming fully the experience, or is not even that. Not even it's not becoming anything. That's another is, misnomer. Is, is like, you know, this. if you're seeking enlightenment, you've missed the point. Yeah, it's it's a polishing of the mirror, as they say. Mm. And that the idea is that you are always, we are always enlightened. Like enlightenment is the baseline natural state of everything. Mm. Enlightenment is everything. These outpourings and these expressions of enlightenment, like we are, are just smudges on a mirror. And the best we can do throughout our life is wipe that mirror clean so that we can most brilliantly reflect our own light of enlightenment for all. So you studied all these different religious beliefs. Is there one that you like identify with more than the next? Or are you just kind of totally open-minded and just the deep truths in all of them kind of really trying to explain the same experience from a different perspective? Yeah. So, um, so in philosophy, there's a, a school of thought of phenomenology, which is basically experiences everything. And I've come to really enjoy that. So psychedelic shamanism has provided firsthand experience of the divine for me. There are those moments of full rapture while under the influence of these different psychedelic medicines that allow for total experience in that moment, which is really, really cool. So that for sure, psychedelic Mm -hmm. shamanism. And then as far as traditional religions go, Vajrayana or Tibetan Buddhism comes closest to being able to describe my own personal experiences. And because they get weird, man. Yeah, define that a little bit. What, what is it about Tibetan Buddhism that draws you in or explains kind of your experience? Yeah, so, so Buddhism started in India and kind of branched out throughout Asia over the course of a few hundred years. And around the 7th century, it made its way into Tibet. Uh, This guy, Padmasambhava, was the one who brought it into Tibet, according to tradition. Mm -hmm. And in Tibet at the time was a group of people called the Bon people. And they were a very shamanic kind of people. And they had these really interesting traditions of engaging with the divine. And so when Padmasambhava brought Buddhism... And it met with the Bon's own shamanic sort of cultures. It created a new thing. So some of the um, the acceptance, I guess, the the letting go of all non-essential things that Buddhism kind of carries with it, but then being able to fill it up with this cool shamanic perspective created something brand new in the world that had never existed before. 
So this, this Vajra, which is the, the, so Yana is vehicle and Vajra is this lightning bolt of consciousness. And so Vajrayana, which is what Tibetan Buddhism is known as, is this kind of lightning bolt of consciousness, the vehicle that carries that brilliant consciousness into fruition. So some of the meditation techniques and the visualization techniques in there are taking you way out, just wow. way, way out. What are, what are those techniques revolved around? Because I know there's a lot of different ways to meditate. Yeah, so for sure. One of my favorite is a, it's a deity meditation. And so you focus on a specific deity within the pantheon of, of the Vajrayana tradition and you focus on every last detail of it. And the meditation is getting those details just right and to the way that, you know, the hair flips to the way the robe comes and creases to the way that, um, which foot is on top of the other in their seated position. What, how, with the mudras, the, how the hand positions, um, what stones they wear, what colors they wear and all these things, what they're sitting on, how many petals does the Lotus have that they're sitting on. And, and is this something you study a visual of that thing first? Or are you trying to let it come to you intuitively? You study a visual of it okay. first. It has a, a very traditional sort of understanding of how that deity presents itself. So there's a lot of study involved in, in these kind of deeper meditations. There's a lot yeah. of study involved. Okay, yeah, so you, you're totally, doing this, totally. you're practicing this. Do you, what happens when you fully kind of connect with like the visualization? What happens then? So that creates that, that single-pointedness of mind. So that's really what it's about. It's not really what you're doing. It's the thing that can you, can you fully let go of everything and be so focused? Yeah, that concentration. That you release everything else. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Then what happens? Yeah, so that concentration allows for this opening, Right. And so um, in, in yogic terms, so there's this dharana, which is this concentration, and then dhyana is this meditation. And so that concentration leads into this settling in and accepting of existence and sort of melting begins to happen into this, this samadhi state, which is just this full unification. And so you become enraptured in the experience of that meditation, which is kind of the end goal, right? And what's cool about the Tibetan way is that you can sort of take on the archetypal energies of that deity that you are presenting yourself into through the wow. meditation. And do you practice these regularly? And have you had the experience of the not, samadhi? Not at, I have had the experience of the samadhi for yeah. sure. And that specific meditation is not regular enough. I'll hit it up a few times a year. Yeah. But how, um, how long before, when, like when you first got into this, because I've heard about the, the samadhi experience through meditation, when's the first time you actually experienced that? And how long was your practice? Like specifically that time you were sitting, like was it an hour, a couple hours until you like broke open? And then how long did you practice before that leading up to like the first time you were able to have that experience? Yeah, that's a great question. It uh, it doesn't really much have much to do with time, as far as I could tell. Mm. It, you know, whatever confluence of circumstances allowed for it to happen in the moment that it happened, it happened. And I can remember my very first one really early on in my meditation journey, and it was like I got so surprised by it that I couldn't sit with it. Because uh, you're like, it should take longer than this. Like, like already? Like yeah, it's here? Sit, there's, there's, I was actually, I remember so well, I was on a rock in the middle of a creek and 
and sitting there meditating, doing a thing, letting it go, letting everything go. And, and it was, I was just trying to focus on the sound of the, the stream going mm. around me. And then all of a sudden, it, it, I just melted into it. And it caught me so by surprise. I was like, oh my God, I did it. I was meditating. I was really meditating. Oh my God, oh wait, I, that, that means I lost it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You start trying to create a, a story around the experience and you're yeah. out of it. Yeah, but it's a, as a, my sweetie would say, it's a sloughing off. Mm. And so sitting there in meditation is not necessarily about quieting the mind or about you know focusing in on this one thing. It's about sloughing off everything else that is blocking you from being present to that moment. Because you already are the thing, but it's all the stories that get in the way that we create. It's like continuing to question. And I mean, even if you're not doing deep spiritual consciousness exploration like this, even to question just the simple stories that come up in every day, right? Like a simple example, like getting cut off in the vehicle during traffic and getting pissed. Like, what? why am I getting pissed? Like, do I need to get pissed? Do I have a choice of getting pissed? And that's really where the, the, like the seed of awareness and self-awareness comes in, right? Because I think a lot of people, they attach so much to their thought. They think that's who they are and they have to act on them. And what these tools do, and this is why plant medicines are so powerful, because it, it immediately de- disconnects you from that story and you all of a sudden become the observer so instantly that you can be like, oh, wow, it is all a story I'm creating. And how can I create a better story? Sure. And also, one thing I really love about the Tibetan tradition is that it doesn't, it doesn't really label good and bad around mm. anything. It just is experience. So they hold reverence for things like anger. Mm. You know, anger has its place. So if you want to delve into the purity of the archetypal anger, you can, and you can, you can find your salvation in that. Wow! And it there's, it's this perfect ambivalence, right? You know, the good and evil is just labels that we put on everything. It's just an experience, yeah. And you can have that experience if you want to. Yeah, that's a perfect segue because I wanted to dive into Christianity a little bit. Um, it's definitely the the faith that I grew up in, the Christian Church. Um, and I'm, you know, having conversations constantly with my parents about it. I know in our Western society, this is a story that a lot of people um, have. And so just kind of your understanding of Christianity and then, you know, the good and evil that is created in that belief structure. Um, it's really hard, I think, for people to understand like, no good and evil. What are you talking about? Like, there's obviously evil out there. I watch it on the news every day. What do you mean? It's hard for them to comprehend that it's all just experience and without evil, quote unquote, there can't be an opportunity to be good. There's got to be that duality like we talked about earlier. So talk a little bit about your experience with Christianity, maybe where that, I know you've studied it and you have a lot of ideas around it. So kind of just dive into your experience with Christianity and then we'll kind of dive into the, the good and evil part. Sure. Well, my experience with Christianity started really little because uh, my grandfather kidnapped me when I was a baby to have me baptized against my parents' will. So that's, wow. that started me on the path. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I, I'm, I'm pretty covered, right? I got the bar mitzvah well, and you, the All baptism. before 15, you did. You got baptized Christian, <laughs> Judaism, and then shamanism. Right. All with before you're even an adult. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. That's pretty cool. Solid um, foundation. 
I think so. Yeah. I think so. At least a foundation to set me on this journey that I've been on for mm-hmm. sure. Like all those circumstances couldn't have possibly been any other way for me to be sitting here right now with you having this conversation. Yeah. I'm so grateful you're here. Cause Man, me too. You got so fun. much wisdom, brother. It's fun. Yeah, it is. So that was my start with Christianity, right? And then uh, the Christmas kind of became like grandpa's opportunity to sit me down and tell me I was going to hell. And it's like, okay, well, Christmas sort of sucks now. Mm. And I have most of my early Christian understandings were that of total rejection and repulsion. And a lot of that was because of my mom's influence and how much she hated it. And so it was like, oh, this sucks. And then looking at the world and looking at history and seeing how much murder has been committed in the name of Jesus. I was like, this is terrible. How can this even be a thing? Yeah. Um, it's really fascinating at a young age to ask those questions. And it's like, there's no real answers for them. No, there's not. You know? There really aren't. There still aren't. There still aren't. I still have, like, so if you, you're not Christian, you don't believe Jesus died for your sins, you're going to hell for eternity. First of all, why would a loving God need to prove anything by sending you to hell for eternity? That just doesn't make any sense. Well, where did the, the idea of hell come from? That's a good question. Where did it? Yeah, Peter. Peter, okay. Yeah, no, not Peter. Uh, Paul. Right? Paul. Paul. Okay. Paul. Talk who, a little bit about Paul. Paul, who was Saul. Who was Saul, who was a Jew, and he was killing Christians on the road to Damascus when he had a vision of, of Christ and had a conversion moment right there and became the official spokesperson of Christianity in that moment and started writing these letters. And, and that's like the Corinthians, the letters of the Ephesians, like all these books in the Bible written by this, this man named Paul. Right, right. He's just writing these letters, making stuff up. And this is <laughs> hundreds of years after Jesus' yeah. life? yeah. Yeah, yeah, at least at least 200 years. We don't really know. Wow. And then the whole Jesus's life thing is also totally up in the air. There's yeah. there's no historical evidence for the existence of a man named Jesus doing what is he supposedly was doing. Yeah. And so the thing that got me was this is a sort of a tangent, but at that time in Israel, Palestine, it was Roman controlled and there are historians everywhere, documenting life every single day from the most mundane of like, you know, cow sales and goat sales to the the political entities of the time. And we have a lot of these documents, these historical documents by these historians, yet there's no mention of anybody doing the tremendous things that the man Jesus was supposedly doing according to the gospels. Mm. No evidence of this at all. And you'd think if there was some dude walking on water, changing water into wine and- and It'd make, show up somewhere. Making fish, like lots of fish yeah. or whatever, fish out of bread, that's what he did. This is the idea of what if someone says like an argument point would be, you know, they wanted to kind of take him away from the history books and like kind of, the, the people controlling the narrative at the time wanted to burn all Jesus, historical documents of Jesus because they wanted to make it like he didn't exist because they wanted to like, you know, not make his name big and they took him out of the history books. Is that a possibility? I guess. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure, I guess it's a possibility. But right now there is no historical evidence of the man named Jesus. There as isn't. far as in, that's not in the Bible. There isn't. What about the Gnostic Gospels and them becoming, you know, f- being found in 1940s? 
kind of date back to the same times when the Bible was written. And there's some pretty powerful teachings in there. Definitely. So how does that play in with the Bible and the scriptures in that story? Definitely. Well, politics. Yeah. Obviously, there, you know, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Like those are some really controversial things. And they have more of a mystical sort of aspect to them. When you when you dive into those, they're very different from the Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John, mm-hmm. and which is those four are pretty much the same story told over and over again, just getting progressively more dogmatic <laughs> and mean. Like like from Luke to John is a big step, you know, yeah. like pretty sweet and and almost uh, um, loving and, and and spiritual. And the John is just like, uh, uh-uh, you do this or else. Yeah. Like, oh. Anyway, um, but when they found the Gnostic Gospels, they had. I think it was 23 different biblical scholars that they brought together in order to do the translations and to decide what they thought about all this, this that was going on. And then one of the guys they brought in who was the only one who wasn't an actual Catholic priest at the time was a man named John Allegro. Are you familiar with John Allegro? No. So he went through everything. He was a tremendous scholar, biblical scholar at the time. And after going through all of the Gnostic Gospels and all the evidence that they had there, he was like, Jesus was not a man. He was actually a psychedelic mushroom. He said that? But that was the conclusion that he came to. It's the, the, Where did he come up with that conclusion? The, is it the Why? cross? The, the Holy Mushroom and the Cross, I think I, is the name the, of his book. I actually ordered that book. It's somewhere around here because someone told me about that. And there's like a lot of uh, like imagery yeah. that has, you know, Jesus with mushrooms in them, like kind of subliminally. Yeah, all over the place. And then, you know, the idea of the Eucharist and... Um, you know, taking in the body of Christ. And so just morphologically, the flesh of a mushroom is more similar to human flesh than it is to any plant that exists in the plant kingdom. Oh, interesting. The fungi kingdom is a fascinating kingdom, yeah. just morphologically speaking. So there's, the, there's those ideas too, right? Yeah. So I have to take everything that I think of with Christianity with a grain of salt. But um, this is... This is kind of tangential also, but- I love this. Like I've fallen in love with the story of Jesus and him kind of as a mystic is what I like to think of him as, like fully embodying what we're talking about is presence and love and connecting with God. It's nothing of what the church actually teaches about Jesus. But I want to dive deeper into like, you know, all these different ideas around the story of Jesus. Where did it even come from? Is it like we take it so literal, you know? Yeah. So go tangently all, all of it. So I'm going to get back to my personal experience and get okay. out of the academia for a second here. Okay. So my own personal experience, I've been, I've been, I've always wanted to have some kind of connection with Christianity. Not always, but since moving away from the hatred of it and as I've developed the respect for all these different traditions and I've had very real visceral engagements with all these different traditions and can, can point to different experiences in my life where I was like, oh yeah, that was like a a cool Hindu sort of Samadhi experience or like I got to experience the emptiness of Buddhism or, Mm. or um, like talking to a being in ayahuasca with a shamanism. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And feeling that, that Kundalini snake rise up my back or whatever, or spinning like a, like a dervish and like getting deep into that Sufist sort of idea and like all these things. I feel like I had these experiences, but I never had a Christian one Mm. until a couple of weeks ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. So um, my sweetie and I, uh, took some LSD. And as it started coming on, it was very strong medicine. It started opening up. I'm like, what are we going to do tonight? We have 
can't really go anywhere. Definitely don't want to leave the house anymore. Like <laughs> doing LSD, one, I want to make it more ceremonial. And so we decided on putting a Prince concert on. Mm. And so we put this Prince concert on and just loving it, feeling it and just everything. And like, as I'm witnessing Prince engage with the crowd and do the performance and all this stuff. And I've been a big Prince fan for a very long yeah. time, but it started getting deeper. And I started like really witnessing his chord progressions. And I was like, wow, why would you make that decision to use that chord there? And it's like really kind of dissonant, but it created this feeling inside of myself that was like, whoa, it took me into a realm of spirit. And I was like, this is cool. And then he came on for his encore and started playing Purple Rain. And I was just on my knees bawling, <laughs> bawling Joe, like oh. crying my eyes out. I'm like, I get it. I get it. I get it. I had an experience of the Holy Spirit because uh. he's, Prince is deeply Christian. Okay. Deeply, deeply Christian. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'd always wondered what that Holy Spirit thing was. You know, the father and son I can get behind because there's a sort of academic intellect that you can use to understand those things. But this Holy Spirit is never really written about. It's not really, there's no good academic way to grab a hold of it. You just kind of have to be there. Mm. And in that moment, I was like, oh, this is why people go to church. They get this feeling. There's something about the collective rapture of that moment that allows for the Holy Spirit to enter. Wow. And Prince gave that to me. And so now I have a totally different understanding of Christianity and a really deep respect for it. And I, uh, I wish that there wasn't so much dogma attached yeah. to it, but to allow for that space, to allow for that kind of experience for people and to have it be that easily repeatable, mm. so cool. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think, you know, a lot of people who do grow up, you know, my experience included, they do have a lot of resistance to even the word God, Jesus, the Bible, church, connection to greater power. And they almost like turn it all off because it's, they just, it's been so like energetically, it's like, this doesn't make sense. Ah, and they just kind of shut it all off. And that's definitely the journey I had, but I always, it, it, that's what started me on my deep seeking of truth. Cause I was like, I want to understand what this is. And I always, like you said, I, I started looking into all these other philosophies and teachings and, you know, science behind it and physics and just like understanding it. But I always, I wouldn't look at Christianity. I was like, no, that's just, uh, and until I started doing some deep healing work and it really the, the deep desire for me to reconnect with my dad. I was like, okay, if I really want to share with him what I'm learning, I have to use the terminology that he's familiar with. And that's what kind of forced me into opening the Bible again, understanding what God means to me and understanding God on a wider lens and going in and, and, and speaking his language so that I communicate with him and try and bridge the gap of, of understanding. And it's really beautiful, I think, for people to, 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 to try and understand and come full circle back into that and like having that experience. And then you understand like, oh, I, I get it. Like I'm not, if you can go have an experience and a connection to God by going to church every Sunday, there's nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful. Like it's all of these are just different ways to, you know, the, the fingers pointing at the moon. If you can get to the moon through that experience, that's great. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's the proselytizing that I don't really get. Yeah. That's tough. The right and wrong and the, the evangelical, the, the we have to save everyone. Like it's our job to save people. Very interesting. So let's dive back into Jesus as the man. 
Okay. And maybe where that story came from or what you've found through your study. Because um, I know that that story has been told before, even in deeper, longer ago esoteric teachings, right? Yes, yes. So Mithras, everyone familiar with Mithras. He was a Phrygian, which is kind of north of Greece. As a Hyperborean is what they call it, is north of Greece. And so this guy wore this cool little hat and... And he uh, he was crucified, and he was down for three days, and then came back, and the whole thing, and then it's like, a story. It's a story. Yeah, that was written in in by the Greeks. It, the 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 Phrygians. The Phrygians. And where Phrygians. what years so, was Mith- this? Mithras. Mithras. Is this yeah. was there like a date that's applied to this? I think it, it, it was like two or three hundred years before the Common Era. So yeah. Like BC, 200, 300 BC? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I do away with, I don't use BC and AD. Yeah. It's, uh, I use Common Era and before the Common Era. Okay. Yeah. So BCE. Okay. CE. Okay. Um, just because I guess that's left over from my disdain for Christianity. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's the stories run deep, man. They do. They do. But it's like, how can this one religion decide how we relegate time? Like that's, yeah. that's crazy to me. But I mean, the people that don't think deeper, they they can attach like, like the whole calendar is based off Jesus's life. Of course he existed. Of course, this is the belief system to believe in. Like the whole world is revolved around it. And like, they kind of just leave it at that and they don't question deeper. Yeah. It's really fascinating. It is. It is. It's silly. So that, so that, that story happened two or 300 years before the Jesus story. Even a couple thousand years before that, um, Osiris in Egypt follows a very similar path. Um, those are the two that I can come up with off the top of my head. From what I understand, there's a roughly 20 or so stories that revolve around the summer solstice. I mean, sorry, winter solstice, mm-hmm. which is basically Christmas, right? Mm. And having this sort of savior. And so even um, cosmologically speaking, there's a kind of a trick that happens with the sun visually as you're looking at it from the earth where when it sets during the solstice, it has this optical illusion where it looks like it takes three days before it actually starts coming back into its new rising and setting place. Hmm. And so it's almost like this death of the sun for three days before it becomes resurrected. Hmm. So there's lots of different things that play into this Jesus myth and so it becomes harder and harder to believe in Jesus as an actual human being once you start seeing these different levels of metaphor and and even um, like astrological alignments and things like that. Yeah, it's interesting. So I guess on the, the bigger question is where, why and where does this story originate from, this idea of three days resurrection, you know, being born again? It's been told so many times. What's yeah. the point of it? I think. I think. Well, what's the point of it? Yeah. Like why? Like why? Well, I mean, and even specifically on the Jesus, like why would someone re bring that story up? It's obviously been in history, 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 and then bring it up and retell it in this way. You know, like what's like why is it that story? Why is it that so consistent throughout time? I think that it's a story of potential and opportunity. You know, every. With sleep, for example, that's our mini death, if you will. Mm. Every night we die 
to waking anew in the morning. And it's, it's, so that death and resurrection is about opportunity. It's about potential. It's about, about the, the glory of, of that fresh new life in order to be able to come with your own sort of inspiration and, and your ability to help as many people as possible or to create as much cool shit as possible or whatever it might be that you're doing with your life. It seems like a good story that allows for that. You know, when you have that as a possibility, like coming back from the dead, anything's possible. Yeah. Yeah, we're constantly creating a new every moment of every day, right? And that's why every time you come back to being present, you have the opportunity to choose how you want to experience life in this moment. So it's a constantly letting go and letting go. What advice would you give to people that like are on the path and trying to just be better or like understand the universe or maybe they have had a little bit of an awakening and they're like, or, you know, this whole COVID thing happened and they're like trying to understand and they feel a little bit like uneasy. Yeah. Gratitude. Mm. I think gratitude wins above all things. I think it's the, the master practice for any kind of spiritual path that you want to be on. Mm. That's beautiful. I like to say the, the key to the kingdom of heaven is gratitude. Because mm. as soon as you can be grateful, like you, you're in control of the experience because even having the experience is something to be grateful for. Yeah. Like the deepest level you go, like it's like, oh, I'm grateful for just being. And you can, it's like the, the journey of just releasing and detaching and going layers deeper into the story of what you think you need to be or what success is or what happiness looks like. And you're coming back to like, I took a breath. Wow, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah, this precious human life. Mm. It's precious human life. Mm. Um, one of the questions I asked, the last question, we kind of, you know, what's the purpose? And then how do we come to be or your idea of God? We definitely dived into that. Um, but I'd love to hear your idea of what, what you think happens when we die. Obviously, when you know, with somebody that's explored levels of consciousness and unity uh, on such a deep level. I think I, I kind of understand that side of it, but I guess, you know, this physical body, when we release the physical body, what, what, what do you think happens? The yeah, great unknown. It's, it's very unknown, of course, but uh, I, reincarnation seems more likely than anything else. Yeah, if we're far. talking about a cyclical universe, right? It's the cycles. It's, we don't just... Yeah, and there's just too much weird shit to be accounted for to not think of it. You know, if you think about somebody like Mozart who comes into the world at three years old and is a virtuoso with the piano, it's like, well, he didn't learn that in this life. Mm. You know, there, and there's so many examples of things like that and uh, some really cool stories about people that are taken into other people's homes and like little children hanging out with the family of someone and being like, oh, I remember you. Remember when we had this experience together? And or just the, like the test that uh, the Dalai Lama or all Lamas and Rinpoches and the Tibetan traditions, they have to take these tests of where they place all these different things like eyeglasses or canes or, or uh, mala beads or whatever it might be from their past incarnation. And they put a whole bunch of them in front of these little kids and they have to pick out which one is theirs from the last life and they can do it consistently. Wow. And so there's, there's 
there's too much not to think of reincarnation as being likely what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard stories of my friends like with kids and they, they, they talk about, you know, we label them as like imaginary friends, but like as a, as a child, like the veil is a lot thinner. They're, they're way more connected to unity and oneness. They haven't actually developed the separation that our culture and our programming puts on us. So they have this, like a little bit more of a knowing mm. before they forget. Mm-hmm. So I've heard stories of like, yeah, like, oh yeah, you know, past life this, or they, they don't, they label it past life. They just, it's like, it is like, it's really wild. Yeah. And I've had a past life regression also. Talk a little bit about that. So that helps for me to think that that's a real thing too. Uh, I was working with this woman named Catherine Darling in Marin County, California. And she has this process that she calls the mother wave, which is, it's essentially like holotropic breathing. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. Stan Groff's um, reaction to the illegalizing of LSD. So they wanted to use breathing to be able to- Access those states. Get to them. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So it's very similar to holotropic breathing. Just (sighs) over and over and over and over, getting yourself into that state. Mm -hmm. And so what, what Catherine would do is she- put you down in her little pit on this big, beautiful rug and get you going and then start asking you questions as, as you're getting into that state. And it starts to get a little bit more intense and more intense and more intense. And then she's asking me questions about my parents and like, like kind of more traditional psychological stuff. And then all of a sudden something happened and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And she's like, what's going on? And, and I was like, okay. And I was in like uh, middle ages, Europe, Kind of thing. Like, like vividly in it. Like a dream. Vividly in it. No, like a, well, yeah, like a dream. Yeah. Sure. But like a, I was awake. So yeah. it was like a waking dream. And my eyes are open and I'm looking around and she's wow. like, she has me describe the whole thing. And I'm in this village and, and I look at my body and I can see my body and I'm like, oh my God. And I was like some huge, huge person and almost like this, uh, like the village idiot, like uh, with a Hodor yeah. from uh, Game of Thrones. Wow. It's kind of what it reminds me of. Once I saw that, I was like, oh my God, that was, I had, I had that life. That's I had cool. that experience. I had yeah. that experience. Um, and then it was this sort of precursor of shame around my own personal power that ended up coming from the story. But I, I witnessed myself, I was I was under the the control of this, this crone like this old woman, kind of a, a witchy sort of woman. And she was manipulating me emotionally and intellectually because I guess some years before out in the marketplace of the village, somebody pissed me off really bad and I had an explosion, but like an energetic explosion, a sort of just like, like this energetic ball of and just, blew everybody around. It was like a bomb went off or something. Wow. And I heard a bunch of people doing it. And when she witnessed it, she used that experience against me to create this deep levels of shame. And so, yeah, the I went through and, and felt like what it was to be that man again and feel what that shame was and see how that shame carried through life after life after life into this present life and allowing me to work with that, to let go of some of that shame, to be cool with my energy. Yeah. So was it like, why that specific past life? Was it because that's a lesson that you're trying to, the energy you're trying to transmute in this life? Is that how you would kind of... And it was something I was very much working with at the time. Mm. It was kind of a fear and a shame around who I am Mm. and 
privilege and all these things. Yeah. So it's this idea that, you know, we have these kind of childhood woundings that we have to work through healing as we go through life. But then there's also this past energetic signatures that goes through lifetimes. Is there, is there like, I mean, talk about like a wise soul lived a lot of lifetimes, has a lot of experience, maybe has a deeper understanding of the universe and is just continuing. It's infinite. So it's like, and then you have this idea of like younger souls. They're here. They don't really understand. They can't conceptualize. They're a little bit younger energetically. And you can kind of, for me, I can like feel that, but that's still my egoic mind labeling that. And like, maybe it is all just experience, right? Like the soul is deciding to come down in this lifetime to have this experience, whatever it is. What's your point of view on that? Got a lot, a lot of different points of view on that. Uh, I think that there are lots of different experiences to be had. And this human experience Infinite, is Infinite, I would one. say. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Um, the, the Tibetans have a, a set amount and there's different ways of engaging with all of them. Um, and the human one is the coolest one because it's where you can learn the most lessons and, mm. and be able to carry them further on. Um, some of these God realms sort of get boring, apparently. It's just all bliss all the time. You're like, oh, boring. Yeah. Um, but, okay. And that goes back to like why people, like why is there evil in the world? Why is there bad? And it's like, because it creates a more wide range of experience. If everything was all good and blissful all the time, it would get, it would get kind of boring in the in the time frame of infinity. Yeah. So like, why would we not decide to come in here in this reality and have the wide range of human experience? Yeah. And so it seems like there's probably some realm where souls, if you will, get to do their thing. Mm. And when they want to have a new level of understanding or experience, then they go, okay, go pop back into a human life for a while and, and do that whole thing. Mm. I read a book uh, by Brian Weiss, Dr. Brian Weiss, Many Lives, Many Masters. It's a great book, yeah. Really great book. Yeah, so that very, opened my mind to incarnation, me. reincarnation. Yeah, totally. Great book. If you want to dive deeper into like the understanding of past lives, I mean, that guy basically wrote the book on the past life regression stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that exactly. is the book. It's the book. It's the book. No one's done it better than him. Not yet, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that a lot of my understanding of it is pretty much influenced by that book specifically. Mm. It's like, yeah, we, you know, there's tons of lessons to learn. And yeah, is there a soul factory somewhere? Mm. Like, is there something just pumping out new souls? And you know, there's some souls that have been around because beginning list is pretty long. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there, there's no beginning than the, the new souls, old souls. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's hard to, it's like, it doesn't make really sense. But then, you know, you just interact with reality and you just see different energetics from different people, you know, and being more connected to the energy and, I guess it is all just experience. It's like, what are they deciding? And then even the idea of separation, it's on the deepest level, we're all the same. We're all one. I mean, what about this idea that, you know, there's infinite universes, maybe this world and this reality and this time is one soul, right? Like we're all the same soul and the oneness that we experience when we do psychedelics or through samadhi is the oneness and we label that God, but that God is the one soul. And then there's infinite number of those gods or souls. And we're just kind of a soul pod that's experiencing itself through this one world. Yeah. That sounds cool. That sounds cool. I like that. Sounds cool. Yeah. I like a universe. I think so much of our understanding of everything is based around 
uh, the material. Mm. And so even the scientism, which has its beautiful creation story of the Big Bang, mm. and it, uh, it came out of nothing. I don't think so. Yeah. How is it possible? And so, and with our experiences with plant medicines and things like that, it's there's a ton of things to experience that are immaterial. And we put so much value on the material. And so even with this Big Bang, even with this, this material outpouring of cosmic awesomeness, there was always some immaterial thing that was sustaining that throughout. And so, I don't know, like the, the, uh, the in-breath and out-breath of Brahma, just uh, every exhale is a new universe and every inhale collapses it back on itself. It's wild to think about it's like we are the universe looking and searching to experience itself that's why we all have this desire to know something greater than ourselves which is what we label god or we put in a box but it's in order for the god or the universe to create experience it had to create separation and so and then the infinity in the loop it's like we're we're and it's the paradoxical nature of the universe, which is so beautiful because it has to be paradoxical or else there would be an end. Like if there was an answer to the questions we're asking, then that would inherently mean that there's an end, which is a boundary. And it has to be a paradox where it kind of bends in on itself. And, and one question leads to 10 more questions, leads to 10 more questions. It's the Hydra head mythology, right? It's right. like the more we explore, the more we don't know. And it has to be like that for there to be an infinite experience. And so we're literally just the universe kind of exploring itself. And it's kind of beautiful. But then it's that brings so you fun. right back into the moment, right? And yeah. not, a, I think that's the key that I get from Buddhism is non-attachment. I think that's so important to like find really true happiness and fulfillment is not attaching to outcome, not attaching or desiring for a future outcome. It's coming back to being present. And like you are the universe, you have the power of the universe within you. And you can go create the experience that you want to have. And you have to take your power back to go do that. But you can't attach to what you want it to look like. And this is the paradox, right? Because then you're going to have suffering if you don't get that thing. Mm -hmm. So it's the idea of surrendering to what the world or universe or God wants to experience through you. And connecting that back to my experience of what the Holy Spirit is. That's the Holy Spirit to me. Is fully surrendering into what the universe or God wants to experience through me. And when I'm totally surrendered into that, I'm in flow. But I think what happens is a lot of people, when they, like surrender is not a passive act. It's one of the most courageous acts anybody can do because to fully to surrender what the universe wants to experience through you usually is calling you to do things that scare you and get you outside your comfort zone and wants you to play bigger because it wants to continue to push the boundaries and explore what it's actually capable of and the magnificence that it is and it knowing that it is a piece and aspect of God. And so it's like, that's the Holy Spirit to me is like continuing to surrender into the flow. And I can very much feel when I'm in the flow and the universe is speaking through me and I'm creating, it's like, oh, and it's, and I think if anybody out there is like wondering how to access that, I think the, the good starting point is gratitude for where you're at and asking yourself, asking the universe, asking whatever you want to call it, how can I be of service? Mm -hmm. And when you show up to be of service, the universe will use you in the most magical way. Just buckle up and get ready. Right. For sure. Thanks for coming on, man. Oh, I man. think this is amazing. We could do this all day, huh? I know. Yeah. I think we'll probably get a bunch of good feedback on this and we'll definitely do it again because I'd love to dive, dive deeper into uh, 
I mean, you have such a wide breadth of knowledge, brother. Like you just, and your open-mindedness of exploring topics without attaching to them. I think that is such a gift. And that's what I was talking about earlier in the conversation when I like kind of introduced you. It's, there's not a lot of people that are just so open-minded to be like, you know, I think for my exploration, the wisest thing anybody can say is, I don't know. Like, I don't know. It might be this, might be that. But there's no point in attaching because we really, on the deepest level, we don't know. We just are, we're the ones creating meaning. So if you want to create that meaning, that's fine, but don't attach to it. Yeah. And the paradox continues. I think let's see is another big philosophy of mine. Just Mm. let's see. Mm. I love it, man. I love you. I love you, brother. Yeah, man. This is fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was great. We'll definitely do it again. Cool. We're both in Austin. So... If you guys are out there and you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you uh, subscribe, leave a review. That will help. Share it with your friends. If you think they'll get something out of it, that will definitely help in uh, supporting this podcast. And I'd love to hear from you. Um, You can reach out to me on Instagram. Let me know how this podcast hits you. And uh, if you'd like to see Matt or listen to Matt back on the podcast, where can people find you? You want to kind of plug anything you're working on or where they can kind of Sure. I have a podcast myself. It's called The Edge of Cannabis Medicine. If you're curious at all about the latest research going into the world of cannabis medicine, I I talk to lots of doctors and physicians and researchers and cultivators and people that are really pushing the edge. That's why I call it that in the show. (laughs) Pushing the edge of what there is to know about cannabis medicine currently. Um, so I got that. You can go to matthewmyro.com also. I, I do some coaching, some spiritual coaching around these things too. So if that's something that you're interested in diving deeper into and having some guidance along that, I'd do that too. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, definitely reach out to him. He's an amazing man. And uh, let us know if you want us to have another conversation. And all that will be in the show notes. Appreciate you guys listening. All right. Huge thank you to Matt for coming on the show. Wow. I feel like I could talk to him uh, for hours. I know we do on occasion and I would love to hear from all of you what you thought of the episode. Uh, Reach out to me on Instagram at joe.holly or leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Let me know uh, what you thought. And um, yeah, definitely interested in having Matt back on the show very soon to dive deeper into some of these topics. I know we kind of scratched the surface on a lot of different things and we were kind of all over the place. But if there's something that piques your interest that you'd like to dive more into or ask Matt directly, because he has such a breadth of knowledge and wisdom and experience, uh, I would love to hear from you. So let me know and uh, I'll have him on again and we can dive deeper into some of the topics that you guys are interested in. Uh, Until then, I hope you guys have a wonderful day, wonderful life, wonderful existence. And remember to come back into presence. That's what I'm learning. That's what it's really all about. How can we be more present for the experience as it unfolds in front of us? I love y'all.